You're listening to the Premier Podcast Network. Foundation Radio is brought to you by 10th Ward Barbershop. Serving the historic 10th Ward in downtown Lawrenceville, 10th Ward Barbershop is a full-service barbershop offering quality haircuts, beard trims, and hot shaves. Adam gets his hair and beard trimmed by the owner of the shop, Ryan Kane, and he loves the laser point precision cuts and lineup he provides to him and countless other satisfied customers. But you don't have to take Adam's word for it. WWE superstars Corey Graves and The Fiend Bray Wyatt frequent 10th Ward for all their hair and beard trimming needs. Right now, all all cuts and trims are by appointment only. So head over to their website at 10thwardbarbershop.com and book your appointment now with Kane, Jordan, and the rest of the team at 10th Ward Barbershop. That's 10thwardbarbershop.com. And we thank them for supporting the podcast. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. world and welcome to Foundation Radio. My name is Adam Bernard. Thank you so much for joining me today. Again, my guest here is an anti-abuse advocate. Uh, She is also currently running for the Democratic primary in the Georgia 10th Congressional District. Jessica Four, thank you so much for stopping by today. I really appreciate it. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I'm happy to have you here. Uh, How is the weather? I know uh, it's probably beautiful in Georgia all the time. Every time I've been there, it's always been fantastic weather. So I guess let's break the ice and start there. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, it's been raining pollen lately, and I think it just started in Georgia. And then I told you earlier, I've been up in Tennessee, so I was, you know, it was actually still going there a little bit. But yeah, so we're just about (laughs) past the yellow snow. And then we're going to have like a couple of days of spring and then it's going to be blazing hot. So yeah, it's uh, it's kind of like that in Philadelphia and then the uh, surrounding regions. It's felt like winter, like pretty much since I feel like last August and it finally got warm again and now it's cold and it's warm and it's just it's just been an absolute nightmare. So uh, yeah. hopefully warm weather is in front of us. Uh, but what I want to start with is just sort of a brief explanation from you as to who you are in case anyone who's listening to the show isn't familiar with who you are or your background. Give me a little primer about who you are. Yeah. Uh, well, as you mentioned, I'm Jessica Four. Uh, I live in Athens, Georgia. I'm from Macon, Georgia, originally. And, um, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a professional musician and I'm a real estate agent uh, and I'm a Christian worship leader. And I've also been heavily involved in abuse victim advocacy, especially in religious settings. And, um, and I'm running for Congress in Georgia's 10th district, which is uh, the district that Jody Heiss currently represents. And he is vacating this seat to try to primary Brad 
Raffensperger for Secretary of State because he's mad that Raffensperger wouldn't overturn the election for Trump. And uh, so that's that's the political situation here. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, people I, I don't think people understand where the, the 10th congressional district in Georgia is as important as some of the, you know, Bucks, Chester, Delaware County here in the Philadelphia yeah. region. I mean, it's a very important uh, area. It's a very important district. And this election also has really serious consequences. I know that's kind of thrown around a lot, but especially something like the big lie and Raffensperger. Yeah. I mean, this is a really big deal. So before we get into all that, because there's a lot of meat on that bone, which we're definitely going to dive into, but mm -hmm. I wanted to talk to you more about your work uh, as far as being a survive, uh, survivor and working in anti-abuse advocacy. Uh, I know that you were involved in the Presbyterian Church of America and things kind of got uh, a little weird. I guess is the best way to put it. Um, tell me more about that story. And I, I obviously I don't mean to make like it. It's just a way to like kind of move into it because I don't really know the transition there. Yeah. But um, tell me more about your experiences there and, and what happened. Listen, I'm a, I'm a big fan of understatement. So, you know, if something <laughs> terrible was happening, I would say this is suboptimal and that's, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I, so I'm a, I'm a church music leader by profession. That's one of the things that I do vocationally. And um, I had an experience, this is, this is going all the way back to 2008, 2009. Um, I was on staff at a, a local PCA church uh, here close to Athens. And, um, and I was married at the time and I was in an abusive relationship. Um, and when you're in, when you're in an abusive marriage, if it's not taking the form of punching you in the face, throwing you down the stairs, a lot of times you don't realize that you're in one. Um, the, the, the power and control and manipulation can be so insidious that it, that it actually takes the person who's in the relationship experiencing the abuse a while um, to kind of realize that that's happening and then come to terms with it and then be able to call it by its proper name. And so, so anyway, I, I was in, I was in a terrible relationship. I was working at this church Um the church leaders actually began to recognize a, a controlling dynamic in the relationship that I was in and, and called me aside and said, you know, we've, we've noticed this controlling dynamic. And I, I had this moment of hope, like they're going to help me. They, they understand what's going on. And it, it turned out to be a conversation about my job performance and how I needed to do a better job of managing his control. Well, the PCA church is a, it's a patriarchal church. It's a church that doesn't ordain women. Um, it's a church that teaches that women are supposed to submit to their husbands. And so I found myself in the situation of being like, well, well, wait a second, you know, you're telling me that as a woman, I'm supposed to submit to my husband, but you're also telling me that I'm responsible for managing him and managing his behavior with other people in the church and all of this. And, uh, and their response was basically like, well, we hired you, so you figure it out. Um, wow. and so, so I was, yeah, Jeez. Um, <laughs> and so I was, I was in a situation that was escalating. Um, and it, it actually culminated in my, um, husband at the time setting me up to be arrested as a domestic violence victim defendant, um, which I subsequently learned is like a really common tactic. People that are experiencing abuse, if they defend themselves, if they react, if they respond in some way, um, then the, you know, it's a very like Gabby Petito kind of situation when we saw all the video that, that occurred with that. And so, so I got arrested and those charges obviously ended up, you know, later on being dropped. But in the meantime, um, it was a situation where my husband could use the court system for power and control. Like he took out a, um, a no contact order that was binding on me, but not him. So then he could show up at my jobs. He could show up, you know, anywhere that I happened to be and, you know, would have the power to have me arrested for just being there if I didn't, if I didn't leave. So, 
so this this happened. My parents ended up coming down from Tennessee to to get me out of jail and take me out of the state for my own safety. And and I'm thinking, okay, well, obviously I'm going to get fired from my church job, right? And um, and I end up having this conversation with the church leaders, and they believe me about the abuse, and they say to me. You know, we think that the elder board of the church, which is called a session in the PCA church, we think that they're that they're going to want you to come back to your job. Um, and so we're going to do like a, a half pay leave of absence while we figure this out. And then as time went by and more and more evidence of abuse came out and more and more uh, police reports became relevant as, as different things occurred. And and uh, and I had started documenting things and there were audio recordings and, and pictures and, you know, eyewitnesses in the church and all of this stuff. As time went by, it became very much a situation where they affirmed that abuse was taking place but then predicated my job on reconciling and cohabiting with my abuser. And so some of the verbatim things that were said to me by the pastor and by elders in the church were things like, maybe you'll kiss and make up. Um, and then when I was actually called in and fired, they, they said to me, the, the stated clerk of the session, who's like the main lay person, not really lay person because they're an ordained elder, but, you know, kind of the main uh, person in the church that's not the pastor. Um says to me, you know, we can't sit around and wait to see whether or not you're going to reconcile. Because the idea that they would have somebody doing music in the church that was going through a divorce, even if those were the circumstances, or that was going through a, se a separation, even though those were the circumstances, um, was so anathema to them that, that they were going to put me in this position. And at the time, I didn't know what a uh, lethality assessment was, a domestic violence lethality assessment. That's a tool, it's an inventory that's commonly used by law enforcement, by social workers. Nobody did one with me, but if, if they had done one, it's all of these factors that you go through and check off. And if you have a cluster of these factors all together, um, it indicates a, a really high risk of the potential to be murdered by your abuser. And I would have been, pos I would have been positive for a couple dozen of them. Um, and so... So, yeah, so I was placed in this position where my livelihood and my life um, was was dependent on you've got to move back in with this guy or we're going to fire you. And there had been financial abuse, like running up my credit cards and, and uh, stalking my, my job search and so on and so forth. And so the result of that was they fired me from my job. Uh, I was plunged into grinding poverty for three years, which included not being able to keep my apartment, having to move in with friends, um, not being able to afford a car during that time. So I had a scooter that I would ride to the two jobs that I eventually got, uh, one of which was 45 miles away. And, um, and it took me three years to dig myself out of poverty. And that was with significant assistance from friends and family, uh, because my social circle um, was privileged enough, was stable enough to, to confer some of that stability and some of that help on me. Um, and so, so anyway, I went through this terrible experience. Um, my closest friends at the time were still members of the church. And so I, I sort of still ended up being relationally connected to the people that had done this while I was going through all of that. And then as I got on my feet, um, I started uh, talking about that and processing it and starting to confront some things. And I started internally having conversations with the leadership of the church about, about how that had gone down. And, um, and, you know, initially they sort of uh, vaguely apologized um, publicly as, before communion. I mean, yeah. it really is only as, as good as the church can do. Cause I feel like, right, right, I feel like right. what you're, what yeah. you're saying is, is a lot like the Catholic church playbook. 
It's almost like the Presbyterians oh, yes. were like, okay, listen, I know that this stuff happened, right? But we yeah. moved him, so everything is fine now. Just come back and bring your kids. Meanwhile, there's yeah. another priest that's here. It's basically doing the same thing. Not, I'm getting well, heavy Catholic vibes on this one, but oh yeah, well, then the Protestant Church is so there. There is there is such a, a systemic abuse problem, especially in the more patriarchal settings where um, you know women are kind of automatically suspect and can't speak up for themselves, and and uh, there's this idea that everybody needs to submit to the men in the church. I mean, there's there's definitely a, a huge systemic thing there. Wow, that's uh, that is surprising. And when you say about the divorce too, I was I guess I'm, I was raised mm-hmm. Methodist, and I usually use the yeah. the line from I, I amend a line from Robin Williams. It's like Catholicism with like a third of the guilt, but it's also <laughs> like I you know in the Methodist church, it's like okay, well if you get a divorce, you get a divorce. That is what it is. You know, it's not like it's not as frowned upon in the Catholic church. I'm surprised to find out that the Presbyterian church is the same way though. Cause I guess I was under some kind of idea that this was different since they broke off, but it sounds like that is pretty much part of the course. Well, so there's, there's a lot of different flavors of Presbyterians and you talk about them breaking off like Ben and like, Jerry's so fantastic. I got it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so back in the seventies, the PCUS split into the PCUSA and the PCA and the PCUSA is kind of like the, the mainstream normal Presbyterians. And then the PCA is the, the stream that said, hey, we don't want to ordain women and we don't want to marry interracial couples, by the way. And so we're going to go and make a church. And they, they actually appointed uh, Judge Leon Hendrick as the moderator of like their third General Assembly in the 70s. And this was the guy who was the judge in the first Medgar Evers murder trial. Oh, God. Uh, and... Yeah, the one that resulted in a mistrial. And he actually interrupted courtroom testimony to allow the guy that was running for governor at time at the time to like cross the courtroom in front of uh, Ever's widow in order to, to shake the hand of Byron Dilla Beckwith, who, who murdered him. And they made this guy a moderator of General Assembly. So this is this is the, the cultural context of, of what was going on. Good grief. Wow. That yeah. is uh, <laughs> there's so much to wrap my head around. But uh, first, I guess the top level part of this is. I'm sorry that you went through that, and that is a really awful experience. And I, I've talked to you know Catholic Church abuse survivors and just you know sexual assault survivors. I know people in my circle, and sometimes some of those folks express like a rocking, like a like a fundamental crack in their faith and their religion. Did you go yeah. through any of those experiences as these things were yeah. happening? I mean, and, and tell me more about. How did it did it strengthen your faith or did it did it weaken it? And if so, the long term effects of that. Yeah, so it, it it absolutely brought on kind of an existential crisis, kind of a faith crisis, because I had been, um, you know, I mean, I, I am I'm a Christian and I I had, uh, you know, been somebody that like prayed for my future husband and, you know, and, and had had all of this. Um, like belief in God's plan for my life. And there was very much a strong sense that like, that's going to include, you know, you're going to do all the right things and then you're going to have a godly marriage. And then that's going to, um, you know, that's going to be part of what gets you where you need to be in life. And, and you're going to have a ministry calling together and all this stuff. And, um, you know, and so like, I was a virgin when I got married and I married a preacher's kid out of the Methodist church as well, you know, that I had grown up with uh, here in Georgia. And I kind of, like I kind of did all the things right as a good church as a, as a good church girl, and then I ended up in this um, completely toxic, controlling situation that was not at all what I what I thought it was uh, going into it. And so, so yes, yeah, so, I mean, you, you know, 
it, it, it brought on a complete reevaluation of everything that I believed um, from a faith perspective. And I really kind of had to deconstruct and get down to just the most basic nuts and bolts of like, what do I believe spiritually and why? And I, um, you know, I went through a period where I thought I might get to a point of abandoning my faith, but I never did. And the thing that, the thing that stopped me from going all the way to it was I couldn't get past, um, I couldn't get past creation. Uh, I couldn't get past like the, the beauty that's around us in the world and the fact that there is goodness and there is like, there are redemptive things that happen. I've been, I've been watching the situation in Ukraine lately um, and thinking about just how, how many things have to be going right for so long for there to be kind of self-actualization type things that people are able to do. I mean, I, I watched a video, you may have seen it, this, this uh, lady that was playing piano in her bombed out house for the last time before she was going to leave. And there was a video and you could tell that, the, that her home had been very carefully put together before it was destroyed. And, you know, and here she is, she's this concert pianist doing this beautiful stuff. And, um, and it takes a lot of time and a lot of, um, a lot of effort and a lot of things going right to be able to have self-actualization kinds of things, beautiful things, artistic things. And it's so easy to destroy that in a moment by somebody who's evil that mathematically it seems like there should be more evil. There should be more suffering. And yet, um, it's common for people to have stable lives relatively relatively prosperous lives it's it is it is not unusual uh for human beings to be able to thrive and prosper and you know accomplish things and and do um do more than just survive from day to day in more in in wealthier societies more than poorer ones right so i mean that's that's a thing as well um but it you know, it kind of came down to this thing, like, what's the what's the nature of the universe and what's the nature of the intelligence behind it? Is it all chaos? Um, is it intentional evil? Or is there a nugget of, um, of goodness throw, flowing through the universe where that's the ultimate reality? And then the stuff that we experience as suffering is an aberration from it. And that's why we, you know, have this outrage because it, it shouldn't be that way. Um, and so I kind of, I kind of ended up there. And then I started, um, you know, thinking about, well, you know, who is, who is this guy, Jesus? Like, do I really believe in the gospel of, of Christ? And it's like, man, I mean, at least historically, uh, Jesus was pretty disruptive to, to the narrative. And then there's all these people that are, you know, that we would think of as spiritual people who in one way or another look to Jesus. They're inspired by him or they're reacting to him or, or, or something like that. And so, so yeah, so I still ended up in a place of strong Christian faith, um, strong belief in God and his goodness. And um, yeah, and that, and that continues today d- despite all of the injustice and, and crap that goes on. So. And, and it's, it's amazing. And, and to tie this back to, to what happened with the Presbyterian church, you're then excommunicated. <laughs> well, they tried, they tried to, they tried, they tried. to, they, 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 you know, I don't know how any of that works, but I, I imagine yeah. that that is just the final smack in the face at this point. Cause you've done, you feel like it sounds like you've done everything right. You, yeah. you, you followed all the steps that you were supposed to. Nobody had any of your best interest in mind, obviously, because you're the one that yeah. ends up on the street and then they try to kick you out. Yeah. What next? How did, how do you end up, I guess, then in the United Methodist Church in the North Georgia conference? How do you take well, those experiences and move forward? Yeah. So, well, thankfully, thankfully, this was my only experience with the PCA church. I just happened to get a job in a PCA church. I'm oh, not, I see. Not, Got it. Okay. So, All right. Well, yeah. safe one on that one. Yeah, I know. 
Listen, so, so I grew up Methodist, um, and I've often thought about the PCA situation like, man, if there had been some good salty Methodists around, I never would have had to put up with any of this BS. <laughs> you know, like this would have, the, in the PCA, it was so funny. It was like, it was like they had this really strong ethic about not gossiping. And so there was, you know, all this crap was going on. Everything was on fire in my life and like crap, you know, she was in jail and she left the state and she, you know, and her husband's dealing drugs and there's all, and like nobody knew what was going on because nobody would talk about it. And, and I just remember remarking to my, to my family, like, man, if this had happened in the church where I grew up, everybody would have known everything the next day, Yes, but there also would have been this BS. Like he would, <laughs> like the, the, the abuser would have been gone, you know, yeah. probably gotten shotguns involved. I mean, it would have been a whole thing. And, um, yeah. And so, so, uh, you know, I've, I've worked in several different denominations Cause I'm a music leader. And so, you know, it's at the time I needed a job and they had one that paid decently. And so I applied for this thing and, and, uh, d- didn't quite realize what I was getting myself into. Yeah. Um, but you know, th- and I, so since going through that experience, so let me, let me just kind of, yeah, we'll stagger back. Yep. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll stagger back. But so I start speaking up about stuff. And then the church tries to excommunicate me for various things that I did, which included at some point they were just like, trying to dismiss what I was saying and trying to ignore the situation. So I sent open letters to everybody in the church describing everything that had happened, documenting everything. And then I was like, I'm going to make this sign that says justice, not abuse about, you know, yay big. And I'm like, I've got it in my lap during worship in the back of the sanctuary. And I'm like, I'm going to hold this sign in church every time I come until you guys freaking meaningfully address the thing that I, that I've raised because this is wrong. And um, so they didn't like that. So they tried to excommunicate me for um, contempt of the elders and at that point, I was like, I'm going public. So I published the indictment. I started blogging about it on WordPress. It got picked up uh, by a bunch of Christian press and Christian blogs. And then I, I filed formal complaints uh, all the way up through um, our presbytery to the floor of the PCA General Assembly. And that ultimately resulted in the appointment of a committee uh, that's being advised by Rachel Den Hollander, who was the lawyer slash gymnast slash sexual assault victim that exposed Larry Nasser um, in the USA Gymnastics uh, situation. And um, so anyway, in the course of doing that, and that started in 2016 and is still going on, they, they're going to re- they're going to release a report this coming summer from the work of that committee. Um, in the course of doing that, all these other women got in touch with me who experienced really, really similar situations in PCA churches, in, in Southern Baptist churches, and in independent fundamental Baptist churches, all these kinds of different patriarchal streams of Christianity. And, um, and a lot of them, you know, had grown up in that and, and, and some of them, their families were still part of it. And so like when I went through all of my stuff, I had a a strong family of origin that supported me and that I was so thankful for, um, you know, just, just being in my corner. But I, I hear from all these women who have grown up in that situation and then their family of origin rejects them and helps to pile on with the, you need to reconcile with your abuser and you need to submit and you need to, to do better kind kinds of stuff. Um, so anyway, so, so getting around to the Methodist church, uh, I'm working at one right now in Gwinnett County that I, I started working at about a year ago. And I was, um, you know, kind of, I, I've gotten to where I read between the lines really carefully with churches because there are a lot of toxic churches. There are a lot of churches that um, are doing horrible things internally and it transcends denomination, but, you know, you can kind of, you can kind of read between the lines about what's going on. And so I was, 
I was almost reluctant to apply for another church job. Um, and then, you know, I ended up doing it coming out of what I thought was coming out of the whole COVID crisis when, when the cases were low and it looked like things were starting back up again for the Delta wave. Right. right? And, um, and anyway, I, I ended up applying with these folks and I kind of, I, like, I almost tried to talk them out of hiring me. I told them all of this stuff. I'm like, listen, <laughs> there's all this drama out there, you know, and they, they, uh, they saw that as a, as a feature instead of a bug. And so there I am. And it's probably the healthiest situation I've ever been in. I'm really thankful for the people that I work with and, uh, you know, it's all good. So that's, I mean, it, it ended in a bright spot, which is great. But yeah. one, one of the things as, as you're sort of telling me this story and I'm thinking about it and it, it's going to kind of transition us into the next uh, part of the conversation uh, with, you know, the 10th, 10th congressional district is the idea where you're talking about the patriarchal society, you're talking about the functions of power. And it sounds mm-hmm. like it doesn't matter between the Presbyterian church, if it's the Southern Baptist or, you know, the Catholic church, all of these the- these, the common theme is this, this corruption of power and the control over what they would consider less than folks, you know, in your situation, women in the church, in the Catholic church as children, it's a very weird dynamic and it's a very weird dance that these guys play. And it's all, all of these things that they do are about control and maintaining control. Mm -hmm. And you see a lot of that. I know we talked about this a little bit briefly uh, yesterday when we, we had our chat, our little powwow, but Donald Trump is very much a person who appears to be, an abuser and speaks like an abuser, right? It's very, it's very unique. I, you know, I'm also have my own experiences with, you know, abuse as a child. It's, it's a, it's almost like it's a, it's a whistle in a way, you know, if you survive it and you know it, you can hear it, but you can't express it in certain ways. Does that prepare you for your jump into dealing with some of these folks? Because I know there's a guy who is currently running on the Republican side, Vernon Jones, who mm-hmm. was accused and has continued to be accused of, of pretty nasty things towards women. I feel like that uniquely prepares you to battle these folks since you've already kind of dealt with language like that. Tell me about how that, how you feel about that. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you're describing the, the perceptiveness of people that have experienced abuse. It's almost like a red pill, blue pill issue. If we're going to make a, a matrix reference. Um, <laughs> you know, thank you. That's, yeah. that's a little bit of meat for the base here at foundation radio. So thank you. We Wait. appreciate that. Yep. All right. Good. <laughs> Among friends. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it's the kind of thing, uh, all forms of abuse are rooted in uh, power and control. It's, it's all forms of abuse are different techniques by which an abuser achieves coercive control over a victim. And that's the case when it's an individual uh, case of abuse. If you're talking about sexual assault, if you're talking about domestic violence, um, all of that is rooted in power and control by one individual over another. But it's also the same dynamic that flows through every form of social injustice. Um, you know, if you think about something like systemic racism, it's it's groups of people exercising coercive control over other groups of people. Um, and it's and it's baked in at every level of what's going on. And, um, and so for me, uh, you know, going through what I went through, and having this experience of resolving in myself, like I'm going to speak truth to power and I'm not going to let this issue drop and I'm going to advance it all the way through the PCA for the sake of not not for myself, but because I'm uniquely positioned to do it for the sake of other people, because it's not just my case. It's all these other women who are experiencing similar things. Um, somebody's got to speak up. And, and, you know, here I am. I 
I made it out. Um, I, I ended up in a relatively economically stable position. I, I don't have children, so I, I'm not having to think about uh, how that would affect my kids. A lot of people are, you know, they, they want to speak out, but they have um, issues where it's a lot more difficult for them to do that. Um, you know, it's, it's like I went through all of that starting in 2016, and then simultaneously Trump comes to power, and here's, here's a guy who is um, so textbook with his narcissistic personality disorder uh, that, you know, you've got psychologists signing petitions nationwide saying this guy is a threat to society. Um, you've got his own niece who's a psychologist coming out and talking about it. You've got uh, George Simon who uh, goes on political shows, but is a, he's an author and he's a, a blogger that does character matters and, and kind of specializes in character disorders or significant personality disorders that, that manifest in this way. You know, and it's it's kind of like just, you know, I, I got out of my own individual abusive relationship and then I addressed the church that was that was part of it. And then I addressed the, the denomination that was a part of it. And then here we are in this suddenly it's like I can't get away from it. It's this national situation where suddenly the president of the United States has three dozen, you know, credible sexual assault victims and is just, you know, the, using all the same dynamics of everything that I've seen up close and personal before. And, um, and so, so it's interesting trying to get people who have not personally been burned by this kind of dynamic to recognize it, uh, before they get burned by this dynamic, everybody realizes it in hindsight. Um, and I, I kind of can't criticize that because I realized it in hindsight, you know, I, I, I was there too. It's this, until you take the red pill, you, you really can't quite see what's going on, but you know, parsing and describing the techniques of abusers and the kinds of dynamics that exist when they are doing their thing in organizations and in societies, it's actually something that can be discussed and it's something that can be taught and it's something that you can give language to. And so that's um, something that has become a particular wheelhouse of mine over the course of, you know, really more than a decade of, of starting out just trying to figure out my own life. Like, how did I a fairly, fairly strong person and, you know, trying to do the right things. How did I get sucked into this situation myself? And then how can I be sure not to do it again? And then how can I help other people who are experiencing some, something similar? Um, and uh, yeah. And so uh, I'm, I'm watching all of this stuff go down. I probably ought to mention too, since I was, um, since I was a little kid, um, I have, I've been very interested in World War II and what happened during the Holocaust. Mm. And I know everybody freaks out if you start mentioning that because they're like, oh, God wins law. Like, you can't talk about Hitler or else you're, you know, you're invalidating everything that you say. Context um, is, as we say in everything, context is king. So, yeah, you know, you have to be yeah. able to look at these things, I guess, objectively and subjectively in some aspects. But you have to be able to look historically back at things and compare it to modern day happenings and give it analysis, the proper analysis it needs. I think in some right. aspects, I sort of, I, I can see that where people are like, oh my God, Obama's Hitler, or oh my God, Trump is Hitler. And it's like, <laughs> well, wait, 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 guys, guys, let's not, pre let's not paint with such a broad brush here. Let's really look at yeah. this and, and really dig deep before we start making these claims. But go ahead. I, I, I agree with that sentiment. Well, yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, there's this crying wolf thing where like, you know, it's common in rhetoric for everybody I don't like is Hitler. And, and then you can never talk about an actual, like, reason historical comparison to the vulnerabilities that existed in the Weimar Republic in the thirties and the vulnerabilities that, that exist in the United States at the present day, which is not making a direct comparison between Trump and Hitler because they're, they're evil, but they're different evil. Well, it's, um, it's, it's right. It's this, it's this, I don't want to say parallel dynamic, 
or parallel, yeah. for lack of a better word, it's a parallel system, you know, because Trump hasn't really displayed the the efforts to, you know, uh, commit genocide on an entire group of people, no. right? But the, well, the levers of power that he's pulling, right, based on my own historical analysis and my study of World War II yeah. and, 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 you know, pre, during and post the Holocaust, a lot of these things seem to be right out of that playbook, the way that they, you know, the, the, the aversion to the truth, um, the blind yeah. allegiance uh, from a particular party. I mean, uh, the power grab that almost happened in 2020. I mean, these are real, actual things that are studied yeah. and historians are discussing this and, re- you know, waving the red flags. But you're right. It's become such a, I don't want to say like it's a, it's a whistle almost, you know, people are like, oh yeah. my God, everybody's Hitler. And it's, it makes it impossible to have that dialogue. Yeah, yeah, it does. Although, interestingly, uh, Godwin, who, you know, who Godwin's law is named after, after the whole, like, you can't talk about Hitler, blah, blah, blah. He, he came out and said, you can talk about Hitler in reference to Trump if you're doing it academically, folks, actually. Like, he actually came out and said that. So. <laughs> well, as long as, he, as long as we have Godwin's approval, then we're going to do it. So go ahead. Yeah. yeah, we're going to do it. Dang it. Godwin says yes. So, uh, but, so my, my grandparents, my grandfather and my grandmother on my mother's side were, ber- were both uh, World War II Army veterans. Um, my grandfather served in World War II. He served in Korea. He served at the Pentagon during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then he, uh, he passed away when I, was, when I was little. But my grandmother um, had been a World War II Army nurse, combat nurse. And, um, and she lived to be 95 years old and, um, and she died when I was in my late twenties. So I got to know her as an adult. I got to have pretty intense conversations with her and, uh, she kept photo albums during her time in the European theater. And some of those, she had one photo album that was of medical procedures, uh, definitely would be a HIPAA violation today, but she had like before and after, you know, the, the surgeries that she assisted in and all these things. And, um, but she never, she never talked about the Holocaust until I was in my twenties and I was doing, um, I was doing a college history project and I was interviewing her and she started to describe to me, um, how, you know, eventually at the end of the war in April of 1945, she was with Patton's third army and they went to liberate a concentration camp. And when I spoke with her, she told me that they weren't allowed to go in after all because they, there was a typhus outbreak in the camp and they were worried about the, the American medical personnel catching it. And, and so she, she told me that she never made it inside the camp, um, which is very characteristic of how my grandmother would have, would have operated to kind of soften things. Um, but what I found out just a few years ago by looking through her, her records and her personal effects is she was there. She went inside the camp. She had her camera. And so she took pictures in the crematorium of bodies piled up. She was literally physically there um, witnessing all of that firsthand. And she lived with that uh, for the rest of her life. And so so I had like this keen awareness, even as a little kid, um, you know, of, of a little bit about what had happened in Europe and how it had affected my, my family and, and the strength that I saw in my grandparents and how much that inspired me. But I was always um, just dumbfounded by this question of how all these people in a society can go along with such obvious evil and how they can let it, they, they can let all these injustices build up and erode over time where it's almost like, um, you know, there's, there's the analogy of the frog in the kettle that if, if a frog, you know, jumps into a pot of boiling water, it'll jump right back out. But if you put it in a, a pot of cold water and slowly turn up the heat, it'll stay there and cook to death. And so there's this, there's this erosion over time 
Um, and, and individual abusers do the same thing. I mean, there's, they, they test their victims. They, they slowly uh, erode boundaries and kind of take things a little bit further. And they, you know, they get you into a place where it's a little bit harder to leave. And, and um, you know, I, I've been watching this happen uh, with Trumpism since, since the campaign uh, back in, you know, back in 2015. And, um, and I've, I posted about it and kind of, you know, trying to sound the alarm and, um, and having everybody that, that, that wasn't already on the same page say, Oh no, no, this is an overreaction. I mean, he's, he's not really going to do anything that, that nuts. And then, you know, it culminates in the Capitol insurrection and we still have people trying to say, Oh, well that wasn't really that big of a deal. Right. I mean, yeah, it's because it, it, it's been going on for so long that it is his yeah. M.O. Again, like we said, and, and I want to be clear on this, too, uh, for anyone that's listening to this as well. I am certainly not comparing something like the big lie to the Holocaust. Right. I want to be very right. clear about this. Right. What yeah. we're discussing is the dynamics of the idea of people going along with this kind of thing blindly. Right. Yeah, it's the same. It sort of set, straddles that same world, but it's two very different situations. Correct. I say all that to say one of the things that I still struggle with right now in this in this age of Trumpism, because as you know, Joe Walsh and I talked about last episode, we're not out of Trump. We're never going to be out of Trumpism until he is officially gone and completely gone from the world. Right. And it's amazing to see people give up their ideals, their morals, their principles on this, the guise of this man saving something. Right. He's doing something for us. He's saving us. He's doing this. He's doing that. And now here we are still almost, you know, a year or two or a year and a half rather removed from the insurrection at the Capitol before, uh, you know, the the inauguration happens. And people are still, including your opponents in the 10th Congressional District, are perpetuating this lie. And and I want to be clear about this, too. Joe Biden won the election. Joe Mm -hmm. Biden won the election fair and square democratically. There is absolutely zero evidence of voter fraud. Zero. Mm-hmm. And it's incredible to see a lot of these guys, I mean, Jody Heiss, um, you know, Herschel Walker, a lot of these candidates that are, that are uh, campaigning for seats in Congress are still perpetuating the big lie. And I, I, I kind of wanted to talk about this. I mean, do you think that that, what do you think that that's attributed to? Like, what do you think it, the spell of Trump is attributed to? Do you think it is a serious abuse thing on a global scale or do you think it's something more than that i think that trump is an abuser of power and there's this minority of the population uh that is comprised of people who are similar to him uh in terms of their psychological makeup and and uh the way that they relate to others which is from a perspective of coercive control and of you know messing with people for sport is kind of what it comes down to for a lot of people and abusers of power uh, tend to recognize and support one another. Uh, and then they get coalitions around them of people that, you know, have varying degrees of culpability in it. So there, there are people that they may not be pathologically abusive themselves, but they are um, interested enough in power and control that they want to they want to go and align themselves with whoever they think is the, you know, they're going to hitch their, they're going to hitch themselves to the Trump train and, and hope, you know, they're, they're betting on that overcoming uh, the will of the people and, and a continuation of American democracy. And so they're, they're making these calculations uh, about, you know, Hey, Trump is going to be the big thing and I'm going to try to get a seat at that table so that I can have some power too. Um, But I think a lot of people, um, you know, in the general population, 
are genuinely deceived and being brought along with it. And a lot of them are, are maybe more analogous to somebody who's in an abusive relationship where they, um, you know, they, they believed that Trump, you know, they believed all the, all the BS, like, Oh, I'm a Christian and I'm going to protect your religious freedom. And I'm, I'm going to save the economy and it's going to be America first and everything's great. And there are people that, uh, have have believed that and have gone along with it, and they think that Trump is protecting their best interests, and they don't realize that they're just narcissistic supply for him and for his you know coalition of of people who want power. And so. it's, it seems like that kind of ties into this Jody Heiss character who is now challenging mm-hmm. Brad Raffensperger, which, uh, as we know, uh, was the Secretary of State uh, in Georgia right now currently, but also was the Secretary of State during the 2020 election. Uh, he is most well known for the uh, the infamous phone call from Donald Trump looking for 11,800 votes in order to win the state of Georgia. Uh, I know that you confronted Jody Heiss recently at one of his campaign stops. And you, you handled yourself masterfully. I read the transcript. It's absolutely fantastic. But I would like a, a, a retelling here of that, uh, if you wouldn't mind, just a, just a brief retelling of what happened there. And tell me more about his – it seemed like he pretty much refused to give a real, like, a real truthful answer on, that, on the questions that you asked him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he engaged in deflection. So, uh, so yeah, Jody Heiss, uh, rarely does any sort of public event, especially close to Athens. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't really invite any kind of town hall, uh, interaction with people. And so he was doing this, uh, fly around tour on a, you know, I guess he chartered a plane or had a friend with a plane. He was going around to all the little, uh, regional airports, um, around the state of Georgia to campaign for secretary of state. So he stopped in Athens, uh, at our little, Athens Benaps Airport, and uh, yeah, crashed his party. So you know, put on a red dress and went on down to to the Jody Heiss rally. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, and uh, so he, you know, he got up and he was doing his shtick. And he was, you know, if you read the transcript, he's he's trying very hard not to take any questions. Uh, doesn't want there to be any accountability. But uh, one of his supporters asked a question, and he allowed it. So that kind of gave me a little in to 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 stand up. And so. You know, I stood up in front of everybody. I'm not. I'm not a shy girl. And uh, I, I said, you know, I'd like to. He's trying to say, oh, we're, you know, we're not going to take questions right now. We're going to wrap it all up and everything. And I'm like, I'd like to ask a question in front of everybody. And I just stand up and started talking. I said, you know, I'm Jessica Four. I'm running. I'm running for Congress as a Democrat in Georgia 10. And uh, you know, you're you're saying that election integrity is a big foundational issue, but you voted to overturn the election and you voted to throw out my vote because I voted for Biden. And we've got a recorded phone call between Trump and Raffensperger where Trump is asking Raffensperger to find 11,780 votes and you're campaigning for secretary of state. So my question is, if you have a phone call like that, are you going to find the votes or are you going to tell him no? And, uh, and of course, he wouldn't he wouldn't answer that question. He circled back around to complaining about Raffensperger sending out absentee ballot applications during the COVID pandemic, which, and the thing is, an absentee ballot application is a blank fillable public document. You can get it as a PDF off of the Secretary of State's website, off of any county board of elections. It's not a ballot. It has to be checked against voter registration. It has to be checked against ID. It has to go through a lot of pain in the rear processes uh, to make sure that it's in order or else it won't be counted at all. And so, but he's hoping that his followers are, um, you know, poorly informed enough about that process that it's just going to cast aspersions and they're going to say, oh, that sounds like an opportunity for fraud. And, um, 
you know, I, I felt like the exchange went pretty well because I always kind of consider the, the range of possibilities. So like in between the worst case scenario of getting beat up by rednecks and, you know, the best case scenario of changing someone's mind. Uh, <laughs> that, that's, a, a that's a broad little, spectrum, but I'm hoping for the latter and not the former. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it was like, it was like a fairly cordial exchange. And then, and then he, you know, like he thanked me for running for office and, and, uh, and then he quickly talked over me and shut it up and wrapped up the meeting. Um, but, you know, I spoke with him afterwards and uh, he was, you know, he shook my hand and was fairly cordial and said he wished me well and like all this stuff. And uh, I go back, I, I have wondered about Heist specifically because I get his mailings and I see um, his rhetoric and then how he interacts with people. And I think that it's, uh, I don't think that he's dumb. I don't think he's crazy. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. I think it's very calculated that he is making a decision to play to a particular base uh, in order to advance himself. I think that's what's going on. And it's funny you brought that up because I want to I want to tie that back to a question that I asked Joe Walsh last in the last episode as well. Is it, It's hard for me to imagine that people actually believe this crap, that people <laughs> actually believe the stuff that they say, you know, that the big lie and, you know, the Muslim ban is good for every. It's just like all this stuff that we've been hearing about the Republicans since Trump took over. And Joe said that he believes that some of these folks like Jim Jordan are actual true believers. Do you believe that some of these folks who are saying these things, who are perpetuating the big lie, actually believe it? Or do you think it is just simply a calculated political move for them to advance, you know, up the ranks? Uh, in the general population around, you know, uh, people people that I know around Georgia, there are definitely people that absolutely believe it. There are definitely people that are operating from a place of being well-intentioned but totally deceived uh, about what's going on. And, you know, if, if you watch three or four hours of Fox News every night and you've been consuming um, deliberate disinformation in a right-wing media universe for a long, long time and, and – um, you know, it's like there's this whole there's this whole group dynamic. There's this whole media and social dynamic that erodes the idea of whether you can even know what's true mm. um, and whether you can ever even really trust what you're you know the information that you're getting from anyone. And so so stuff becomes trustworthy or untrustworthy based on the source. And and basically it becomes a it becomes an exercise in confirmation bias, right? Like right. the 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 sources that tell me what I want to hear are the ones that I should trust. And it becomes really psychologically uncomfortable to, to question that um, or to, to go looking for um, more credible information. Because that because if you do that, you have to sort of reevaluate your entire identity that you've been emotionally invested in for a long, long time. And a lot of the programming, you know, I, I get a lot of secondhand Fox News when I visit family, um, you know, so I, I will be obliged to sit down and, and kind of consume a whole, a whole segment of Tucker Carlson. And I'm sitting there, you know, thinking about it academically and, and from a detached observer kind of, kind of perspective. And I'm like, okay, that was a five minute segment that had, you know, these misleading statements compounded with these logical fallacies and whatever. But, but emotionally what it does is it keeps people in their limbic system, which is like your emotional reactive kind of, kind of part of your mind which doesn't lend itself to saying, well, hey, this, hey, just a second, let's let's go Google this. Let's go find out if this really happened. It keeps you angry. It keeps you reactive. There's um, a hit of dopamine that comes with that where you kind of you kind of need that fix of being outraged, uh, you know, on, on behalf of your team. It's kind of like watching football or pro wrestling. To some I was extent. just going to say that I was just going to say there's a there's a yeah. great if you haven't seen it, there's a great clip uh, by Eric Bischoff. He gives a uh, um, it's a TED talk 
about how much pro wrestling is like politics. And he says the exact same thing. He says, once you get someone to the point where they are so rageful that they are blind with rage and outrage, logic goes out the window. They don't care about what's true. They don't give a crap about what you have to say about whether this policy or that policy. They're angry. And now you can really do whatever you want. And it's, 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 a, it's incredible. It's an incredible dynamic to watch it in action. But yeah. I want to I talk a little bit about, we'll go into more of the, uh, you know, the, the Purdue-Kemp uh, conversation in a second. But I want to talk more about uh, the, the 10th Congressional District. And it kind of ties into, we were talking about this idea about that seat being an unwinnable seat for Democrats. Now, you've been in the district for a long time, right? You've been there pre-redistricting. Uh, so you're like the real deal candidate from that area, right? That's right. Yeah. And yeah. so you, you, I feel like you, you know, and, and part of your statement and part of your, your approach is I am the right choice. You know, there's five, you said, you mentioned that there's five candidates on the Democratic side yeah. right now. Um, all four of them have either failed to show up uh, to events or failed to really do the, take the steps that they need to. And you're the one who's out there boots on the ground doing those things. You've mentioned also too, that you're uniquely positioned to get to the disaffected voters who maybe yeah. had voted for Trump maybe are completely, they're, they're Republican, but they are not Trumpians, um, very yeah. more moderate folks. What makes, what sets you aside? What makes you uniquely positioned uh, to, to complete uh, this objective? Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, so I'm, I'm the only current and long-term resident of the district that's running. Uh, I've lived in district 10 for 23 years. Um, and, uh, and I've, I've been involved in district 10 or have spent time in district 10 since I was a kid, uh, going back between going back and forth between Macon and Athens for, you know, football games and all, all kinds of different things. So district 10 is, um, it's all of Athens, Clark County, which is where the university of Georgia is, which is where I was educated, graduated in 2002. Um, it's all of the contiguous counties around Athens and then it's a bunch of a bunch of counties south of there um, it's 18 counties total and that's down from 25 due to due to recent redistricting so Athens is a, a, a solid you know liberal bastion we're a nice little blue dot in a sea of red and so our, our state legislature uh, definitely bleeds us into the the surrounding red counties in order to dilute our voting power and um, and so prior to redistricting, this district was solid red. It was Republicans up by 28 points. Um, with redistricting, the partisan lean has has actually been reduced to Republicans being up by 15 points, which is still a red district, but it's it's kind of right on the edge of being competitive. Um, so there are five there are five Democrats running. Um, uh, of the five running, four of them have a web presence and have shown up to any campaign events. Of those four, uh, there are two that live in the district. And of those two, one lived in the district before redistricting a few months ago, and the other one has just recently been drawn in. Um, then there are two candidates that are probably running more serious campaigns in terms of showing up to things and, and you know, try, trying hard to get elected. Um, and neither of them live in the district. Hmm. And, um, and the thing is, in order to have a chance in this district, um, it's going to take somebody who has the ability to make up a 15 point difference uh, by being able to persuade swing voters or at least being able to get them to, to abstain on that line item on the ballot and not vote against them. And so, so from my perspective, um, I'm the only one that has any chance of doing that. Uh, I'm the only first time politician. Um, the, the others have previous races where they've demonstrated that they don't get swing voters, even in their own communities where they live, um, which is, for a couple of them, not in Georgia 10. Um, 
since I've been living in the district for 23 years, I've been, uh, you know, I've been heavily involved in in church ministry in the United Methodist Church and the PCA um, in the in the Anglican Church and in several different uh, streams of Christianity throughout the district. Um, I've got a national platform because of the abuse advocacy that I've done, the, the abuse victim advocacy in in, a, in the PCA Church. Um, in the Methodist Church, the North Georgia Conference is the which is. Methodist churches are, are organized into annual conferences. They're, you know, regional groups of Methodist churches. The North Georgia Annual Conference is the largest in the world with 350,000 members. Members, wow. uh, Yeah. And they have their annual meeting in Athens, where I live. Um, and so I've done, you know, I've hosted events for North Georgia United Methodist Clergy. I've provided consulting to uh, what's called the Connectional Ministries Office of the, of the Methodist Church. Methodists are connectional, so they move their pastors around. And everybody knows everybody and all of that. Um, and I've probably played music at every county seat Methodist church in Georgia 10. And I've served on staff at, at a handful of them as well um, over the years. And so, so I've got kind of this large network of people that, um, you know, a lot of them are conservatives. A lot of them are tired of Trumpism. Um, a lot of them normally won't vote for a Democrat, but they know me and they trust me. Um, and they, they know my character and my integrity, even if we might disagree about some stuff politically. Um, and the, the political disagreements that we have are like, let's discuss the role of the federal government in the economy, and which is really what a political disagreement ought to be. It shouldn't be like, you know, did somebody win an election or, you know, should we, should we have a democratic process for electing our representatives? Um, and so, so yeah, you know, it's going to take somebody with an existing network that transcends party that gives some of these folks that are, you know, that are evangelicals, that are disaffected conservatives, you know, that want small government and low taxes, but they're not on board with like a capital insurrection, you know, give them something that they can see as a viable alternative and somebody that they can, that they can potentially support, even though I've got a D next to my name. One of the things I wanted to talk about as well, as far as, you know, crossing over that bridge, because I know some Democrats have had that issue and some Republicans have had that issue, but I know that you are a supporter of universal health care. Yeah. How, you know, I know a lot of the times, because I am as well, and one of the things I hear all the time is, well, how are we going to pay for it? Yeah. You know, so what's your response to that? What are your plans in order to try to introduce universal health care? And also, as sort of a 1B to that question, how do you plan to present that to voters who may be cautious to vote for you because you support universal health care? Yeah. Um, oh, man, there's there's so many um so many parts to a good answer to that question. So first of all, um, I am a fiscally responsible capitalist uh, businesswoman. I'm a real estate agent. I'm self-employed. And I have um, had to work my way out of poverty uh, following the events that I was describing earlier. Um, and so I went from being uh, desperately poor, um, upside down in debt, unable to make ends meet, um, to through the course of making good decisions about getting out of debt and setting up different you know streams of income and, and different you know, different pursuits and things like that have gotten to where I'm self-employed and able to say campaign for Congress full time for however many months, however many months it takes. Um, and so I am very, very good at problem solving. I'm very good at um, getting things done on a budget. So, you know, I, I think that it's important that we do ask questions. How are we going to pay for it? And that we have a realistic plan to do that and not try to pass unfunded mandates. Um, and so obviously, universal health care is going to cost some money and the money has to come from somewhere. OK, so first of all, my first point is uh, 
when we um, implement universal health care, the cost of health care goes down. Because right now, you know, here we are in the United States, we have the most expensive health care in the world. And the reason that we have the most expensive health care in the world is because we um, prioritize the ability of corporations to make profits at every stage of the game. So if something happens to you, um, you know, you take an ambulance ride to the hospital and they take care of you there, you know, you are paying um 1800 bucks or more for an ambulance ride or your insurance on your behalf uh, because the corporation that's running that needs to needs to make a profit and then the hospital is owned by a corporation that needs to make a profit and the the IV bag of fluid that ought to be 2 bucks is manufactured by a corporation that needs to make a profit so it's a couple hundred bucks and then there are uh, medical billing corporations whose entire job entire business model is let's figure out how to upcharge everything um, so that we can squeeze more money out of consumers and out of the insurance industry and and so on and so forth um, if we we go to a, a single payer model. Let's say, um, you know, if, if we look at uh, if we look at say the Scandinavian models um, that are providing better healthcare outcomes in Norway and Finland and all of these kinds of places, um, we end up in a position where uh, the the government will offer a contract to say you know, uh, somebody that's manufacturing hip replacements. And so the manufacturers of hip replacements have to actually compete with one another, free market, free market competition, yay. They have to actually compete with one another to get the prices down in order to win the contract. So it actually drives the costs of healthcare down um, when, we, when we don't have corporate, corporations profiting at every stage of the game. Uh, the second thing is we're spending so much on healthcare right now. I mean, I mean people's health insurance premiums are, are through the roof. Uh, and then even if you're paying for a health insurance premium, you probably have a, a significant copay and a significant coinsurance payment where you pay all this money for nothing to happen. And then if something bad happens, you pay all the rest of this money and you go medically bankrupt anyway, um, <laughs> despite being insured. And we have some of the worst outcomes, uh, despite all the money that we spend on healthcare. And so, so anyway, uh, I oppose tax increases that don't give a commensurate benefit to middle-class people. I think that one of the things that we need to do to raise revenue is we need to look at our top marginal tax rates. I know that's a big conversation right now, uh, you know, where we have some of the lower top marginal tax rates in the world. They used to be as high as 94% under Eisenhower. Uh, there are people on the left saying, hey, let's go that high again. And your your viewers are going to, your viewers and listeners are going to know this, but just to, to say this for those that may not, we're talking about top marginal tax rates. We're talking about taxes on all of the money over a certain threshold. So if that threshold is $10 million, we're talking about the $10 million in first dollar would it be experiencing this percentage. Um, so, so here's the thing. We've got Democrats saying, let's raise that tax rate. We've got Republicans saying, well, no, when that tax rate is low, then, you know, people stay in the country and they make jobs for everybody. And, the, you know, the economy benefits. What I want to do is have conditional top marginal tax rates that are um, that have multiple tiers uh, that are predicated on these results that Republicans say are just going to naturally happen uh, if we cut taxes on corporations and the wealthy. So say, hey, you know, you can get a lower tax rate, but you've got to show us domestic living wage jobs. Uh, you can't be profiteering off of things during during a COVID crisis and, you know, say raising the price of gas uh, relative to the price of a barrel of oil to the extent that we've been seeing lately. Um, and so I think that we can get revenue from from corporations that and exercise as much social responsibility as others. And that would be uh, one step towards doing that. I, uh, I, 
I know that, like I said, the biggest thing I always hear all the time is how are we going to pay for this? How are we going to pay for this? And there's ways to do it. It, it, it boils down to reallocation of funds. It boils well, down to a complete, not necessarily an overhaul of the, the top, top tax percentage, but it definitely comes down to that. The money is there. How yeah. we're going to get there is how we're going to allocate those dollars and how we're going to use that money effectively. I want to go back. I want to talk something else to, uh, before we, I know we have to wrap up in a couple minutes, but I want to touch on two other things. I want to touch on arguably another big race inside of Georgia because what race isn't big inside of Georgia right now? Stacey Abrams is running again for governor. Um, I know you're a supporter of Stacey Abrams right now. Um, I'm just going to flatly ask this because I don't know how else to ask this. Do you think she's going to be able to win this time around? I, I sure hope so. She came awfully close last time. Um, and uh, Georgia has gone soft blue. So, I mean, I, you know, this election is going to be a wild card in so many ways. Um, you know, the traditional metric is that the midterm election after a presidential election is going to go in the direction of the other party, the party that's not in power. And so by traditional metrics, it, it ought to favor Republicans this time around. However, we've never had a capital insurrection before. We don't really know what that's going to do. Um, we don't have a, a mathematical measurement of what the voter turnout is going to be and how many people are going to be disillusioned and, and finally say, you know, enough is enough. Um, I think Stacey's brilliant. I think she's going to be a much better governor than Brian Kemp, certainly certainly a better governor than David Perdue. Um, and, uh, and I absolutely support her candidacy, and I'm excited about it. And, uh, you know, I think she does have a realistic shot. I think that if anybody was going to do it, it'd be Stacey. So... I agree. And I think outside of the sort of the changing demographics of the state in general, overall, not just the redistricting, but to, but the, the change in, a, in a demographic, I feel like this infighting right now between Kemp and Purdue is really hurting that base. Um, yeah. I know that I know that I, I've read that Herschel Walker, Burt uh, Jones and Jody Heiss, none of them have actually come out to, to like uh, endorse David Purdue. Um, but it's almost like Kemp has this really terrible track record of, of, of protecting voting rights and, and, and his positions on uh, these opt, uh, the voting rights in general. And uh, there was a whole thing about his conflict of interest when he was a secretary of state and running for governor in the first place. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like it's a lesser of two evils, but both are almost as equal. What do you see happening? Because you're, you're on the ground right now and you're involved in that really heavily. What are people saying right now about Purdue versus Kemp? Do you have like an idea of who Abrams' opponent will be in the general election? Or what do you, what's, your, what's your analysis on it? My, my sense, well, based on a couple of things. First of all, um, Kemp has outraised Purdue just to a ridiculous degree. Um, Purdue is, is struggling in his fundraising. I've been following him on Twitter and watching him post campaign events that he's struggling to, he's struggling to, to fill small venues wow. with supporters. Uh, Trump has come out and hedged on his Purdue uh, endorsement here recently. Uh, so it seems like he thinks that, that Purdue is not doing all that well either. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, there's going to be a blowback against Trumpism and that even those that consider this, themselves to be pretty conservative um, are going to probably split for Kemp. Uh, not that Kemp is like a great choice, but at least he sort of did the minimum to, to hold the line here this, this last time around. Um, it's been really interesting to watch uh, Republicanism, like the definition of whether you're a Republican or not be uh, rewritten to be about how much you kiss Trump's ring. Uh, you know, now if you, if you don't go along with Trump, you're a rhino, you're a Republican in name only. Um, I think a lot of people are, are tiring of that. Uh, I think the, the antics that we've been witnessing lose their appeal when they're not constantly in your face on Twitter and the news all of the time. And, um, 
you know, I, I think that there's going to be a, a significant backlash against Trumpism. At least I'm hopeful that that's the direction things are going. And I guess for someone who's outside of the state as well, it's it, reading and researching this and, and looking at the differences between the two, they're very similar. I think really the only difference is, like I said, Kemp, and as you mentioned too, you attested to as well, Kemp did the the bare minimum in order, in order to keep uh, democracy in line. As to, for someone who's not in the state, what does this fight really boil down to? Like, what exactly are they fighting for? Is it really about who's the better Republican or who who's going to have Trump support? Is that really what it boils down to here? Uh, internally within the Republican Party, you mean, or you mean... Just in general. I mean, what exactly is it? What exactly differentiates? And as far as if I'm Purdue and mm-hmm. I'm talking to a, a potential voter... And I'm talking yeah. about Kemp and I'm saying, well, here's why I'm better. Well, Kemp has the same policy. Well, I, I support Trump. Well, so does he. What is his platform? What exactly differentiates him other than the support of Trump? Yeah. Well, I mean, notably, the RNC didn't release a platform in 2020 because it just <laughs> became about because it right. just became about Trump support. Right. Um, yeah. It's it's there's not a lot of I'm not witnessing a lot of issues based uh, uh, dialogue you know, on the Republican side or even between Republicans and Democrats, it's it's a power struggle. Um, and I think Trump has sort of become the strong man that people want to align themselves with in order to get power. And I think there are different calculations going on. You know, like we talked about, I'm, I'm sure there are people in the general population that are genuinely deceived by what's happened. But there are a lot of people that are either, you know, they know what's going on and they consciously enjoy the trolling aspect of it, or they are making a calculation for what's in their best interest in their political careers to, to hitch themselves to it. And I think that it's all just kind of, um, you know, prone to falling apart at this point. Um, that's just, it's very difficult to sustain a movement and sustain people over the long haul um, by, you know, aligning with, one jerk or by aligning with the stuff that they're against and the stuff that they're angry about. At some point you have to have some kind of positive, hopeful vision or else everybody just kind of burns out and gets really meh about what's going on. And, um, and I think I see some of those dynamics happening uh, among, among conservatives in Georgia. Um, And so, you know, I'm certainly hopeful to, to provide them with a better alternative. Well, Jessica, it's been fantastic having this conversation. I love having this dialogue. I love getting to talk politics with anybody. My final question before I let you go today, um, what are your plans when you win the election? We get to November, you win the election. What are your plans when you're in office to help safeguard the voting rights of all Georgians? Because I know that that was a national discourse, and it wasn't just in Georgia. It was also here in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and all the swing states uh, that Trump tried to overturn during the election. What are your plans day one to help safeguard those voting rights for for the people in your state and the people in your district? Well, we need to modernize our voting system and we need to make it uh, the, the thing that the thing that Republicans do um, when they are trying to uh, undermine voting rights. Um, not all Republicans, but, you know, the, the ones that we've been dealing with. The Trumpians, right. The, yeah, the, the, the ring kissers. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, the ring kissers. They, they, they make it inconvenient. Uh, they make it purposely inconvenient so that somebody that is in any way, you know, struggling to figure out the process or having other challenges in life, 
uh, you know, will will throw their hands in the air and not get it done, or will try to do it and have some little some little you know uh, Simon says, oh, you didn't do this or you didn't do that, where their vote doesn't count. Um, we, we've got to we've got to end all that nonsense. I mean, we need some basic provisions like same day voter registration. You know, I'm looking at this election coming up. The voter registration deadline in in my race is April 25th. And the primary is not until May 24th. So people aren't even thinking about the election yet. And if something weird has happened, um, if they've been purged because they, you know, we, we also need to end this whole use it or lose it voter registration thing, where if you don't vote in a, a certain number of elections, they can just take you off the rolls. That's got to stop. We need uh, automatic voter registration, same day voter registration being possible. Um, we need ultimately... And so from what I know about Internet security, we are not in a position to be able to do online voting yet uh, because we need end to end encryption. And then that that also um, creates some some energy problems and questions because that's a pretty energy intensive process. But I think that we need to be looking at ways to eventually be able to get there in a secure way. Um, it's, it's just voting should be the easiest thing in the world. Uh, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, uh, broadly speaking, I support the provisions of it. Um, and, uh, you know, we, bottom line is we just we need to make sure that everybody who has the right to vote is able to do that uh, as conveniently and, and in, as, in as streamlined a way as possible. So. I, uh, I am looking forward to watching this campaign uh, continue. Jessica, where can people find you online if they're interested in your policies and your platforms and they want to see more about what you're doing? Where can they find you? So they can find me at J-E-S-S-I-C-A-F-O-R-E-G-A dot com. So that's Jessica for my name with an E on it, uh, G-A dot com. And then they can also follow me on Twitter uh, at the same the same tag, Jessica, Jessica for G-A. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I would love to, to connect with everybody and always, I'm glad to have a good conversation. So I have thoroughly enjoyed this Jessica Ford. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for stopping by today and uh, good luck in the race. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. Foundation Radio is hosted, recorded, and executive produced by Adam Barnard. The show is also produced by Sam Kreps. Special thanks to Greg Mead, Joe Keen, Jeff Quinn, and Dr. Ruth Almy. Our intro and outro music is produced by Dumb Ugly. Find this episode and our full archive at foundationradio.net. Follow us on Instagram at foundation underscore radio. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your favorite podcasts. This has been a Foundation Radio production. Butts Carlton, proprietor. Butts Carlton, proprietor.